Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. This week's episode focuses on complex shoulder instability and more specifically the anterior shoulder dislocation and how we manage these patients. The anterior shoulder dislocation is the most common and most frequent form of shoulder dislocation that we see in the sports medicine world, most commonly associated with both overhead and contact athletes. And it's a very common scenario that we deal with in our clinics, both from a surgical and a rehabilitation standpoint. This episode goes through a very typical situation that we encounter as sports medicine clinicians, seeing a young patient in our office after their first shoulder dislocation in the middle of their season. Throughout our discussion, we address a variety of different clinical situations, including a patient that has had multiple dislocations or instability events to their shoulder and how we might, this might change our approach. Our guest this week is Dr. Tony Miniacci from the Cleveland Clinic. Tony is an expert in disorders of the shoulder and particularly shoulder instability. He has been the team physician for the Cleveland Browns in the NFL, as well as a physician for the National Hockey League Players Association. He has numerous publications and book chapters dedicated specifically to this topic. Additionally, Dr. Miniashi is well known to me personally. Uh, He actually operated on my right shoulder about 20 years ago now for this exact same problem that we're discussing today. At the time, I was a young rugby player playing for the University of Western Ontario in Canada and also the Canadian Under-21 national team, and I had multiple episodes of recurrent shoulder instability. The initial episode actually happened in ice hockey when I went headfirst into the boards, resulting in a shoulder dislocation, but after that, it was a common problem that I dealt with as an athlete with my shoulder subluxating on the field during a tackle or at the later stages even when I was reaching behind me for a ball. Anyways, I visited with Tony around that time uh, when he was on staff at Toronto Western Hospital in Canada, and he operated on my shoulder and fixed my problem. So I've remained in touch with him since then. He's become a mentor for me in both my medical and orthopedic careers. So it's sort of as if this is coming full circle for me now, interviewing him uh, for shoulder instability topic for when she, he once operated on me. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We discussed almost everything we can think of to do with shoulder dislocations, and I think it's a very informative discussion. It does get uh, quite technical at some points when we address some of the surgical considerations and technical aspects, but I hope you enjoy it. We have more episodes coming soon, so don't forget to follow us on social media, including Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us via email. The email address is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com, and we're always happy to hear from you. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy uh, this week's episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Dold. Our guest for this week's episode is Dr. Tony Miniacci. Uh, orthopedic surgeon and upper extremity specialist from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Tony, great to see you, and thanks very much for doing this. Hey, it's a real pleasure, and uh, great seeing you again, um, uh, not not as a patient this time. <laughs> yeah, so we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I'd like to start these with a little introduction of our guest. Uh, Dr. Miniachi is a well-known upper extremity surgeon uh, at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Um 
He started his training at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. Um, it's followed by two fellowships. I believe you went to Curlin Joe for your first fellowship and then Bern, Switzerland for another upper extremity fellowship. Um, and that led you to uh, Toronto Western Hospital where we first met. Sorry, it was actually three fellowships. I wasn't very smart, so I had to do three fellowships. So my third <laughs> one was in Calgary. And I went to the research center there, spent uh, some time there. And then I actually, initially, I went back to uh, London, Ontario at University Hospital and spent five years there before I, I uh, went to Toronto as the head of their sports medicine program at the Toronto West. So now you're in Cleveland, Ohio. Tell us about that. So, so in uh, 2003, I moved uh, from Toronto to Cleveland to be at the Cleveland Clinic. And I was director of the uh, sports medicine program here and helped build uh, freestanding sports medicine center. Great. So Tony's been on numerous committees, including the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine, the American Shoulder and Elbow Society, the Arthroscopy Association of North America, and so on. You've been the team physician and surgical consultant for the Toronto Blue Jays, as well as the National Hockey League Players Association. And you've been the head team physician for the Cleveland Browns in the NFL from 2003 to 2009. Yeah, that's lots lots of uh, road behind me. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's a good idea that we give a little bit of an introduction here to how uh, we met. And I think it's a pretty suiting story for our topic of discussion today. Uh, But this was almost 20 years ago, I guess now. I was about 19 years old in my second year at the University of Western Ontario, uh, playing rugby for the university team and also for the under-21 Canadian national team at the time. And I had had a history of shoulder instability events. Uh, I dislocated my shoulder uh, the first time was was actually in hockey going headfirst into the boards, but then multiple episodes of shoulder instability. I think I probably had about 20 or 30 episodes of shoulder instability, not where my shoulder would dislocate, but it would, would, it would subluxate. Uh, it would be very painful uh, during the episode and then for about two weeks afterwards. Um, and actually a guy that I was on one of the age grade teams with, um, you would probably remember him, Matt King. Uh, he had a great career for Canada and ended up playing overseas in Europe, Captain Cambridge for a number of years. Um, but he had had shoulder surgery by you and said, you know, listen, you got to go see this guy, Dr. Miniachi at, at Toronto Western Hospital. Uh, um, and that led me to you. Uh, so I ended up having uh, shoulder surgery. Uh, I'm not too sure how much you'll remember of that, but you said it was a huge labral repair. Uh, almost a circumferential labral tear. I think you said you used 11 or 12 anchors to fix fix my labrum front and back. Um, and, you know, I went through the whole rehab process and returned to play after that. Luckily, I didn't have any further episodes of instability. Um, so overall, a very, very uh, good outcome. And, you know, I think that that sort of prompted my pursuit of a career in medicine and sports medicine and orthopedics in particular. So I would say that you're partly to blame for that. Um, And yeah, I said this in the intro, but it's almost come full circle for me uh, sitting here talking to the guy who did my shoulder surgery um, about 20 years ago and now discussing the same topic, shoulder instability and complex shoulder instability at that. Um, so it's certainly a pleasure to have you here and, uh, great to see you as always. Yeah, it's great to see you. Actually, I do remember you because you were so keen after your surgery, well, before and after your surgery. And, uh, you kept telling me, you know, this is so great. I, this is what I want to do. And then, and then when you <laughs> ended up 
uh, in medical school and then the residency program. It was just so nice to see. So that uh, yeah, I, if I had any influence, I'm willing to take the blame because you're a great doc. I know that. Well, thank you. And uh, we remained in contact throughout my medical school. I did one of my uh, clerkship rotations with you at the Cleveland Clinic. I spent about six weeks uh, with you. Uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, and we remained in touch throughout residency and so on. Anyways, we're going to get started here. The topic for conversation today is complex shoulder instability and specifically the anterior shoulder dislocation. I think you're the perfect person to talk about this with. No one, or at least very few people, know as much about this as you. And this is the unstable shoulder um, this is a common situation that we deal with as sports medicine clinicians, and there are a number of contentious or debated uh, subtopics in this area that we'll try and address today. So my plan for uh, this episode is to go start to finish, start to finish through a case, and obviously we can we can decide where we want to go with this. But this is a common case that we see in our practices. Uh, I've shared the case details with you, but we'll maybe use that to help direct our discussion. How does that sound? No, that sounds great. Thanks. Okay, so this is a 19-year-old in-season football player who suffers an anterior shoulder dislocation during a tackle. There are six games remaining in the regular season, followed by the playoffs. This is his final season in high school football, and he's looking at the possibility of an NCAA offer. He is transported by EMS to the local emergency department, where his shoulder is successfully reduced under conscious sedation by the ER physician. X-rays are taken, which are negative, uh, and this is his first shoulder dislocation. So I'd like to use this as our, our case and sort of progress through this, uh, discussing all of the different uh, variables and factors that you might consider in this patient, including age of the patient, uh, first dislocation versus multiple dislocation events, uh, timing of the dislocation, in-season dislocations versus, say, someone that happens uh, in the final game of the season, uh, contact sports, uh, dislocations requiring reduction in the ER. Uh, and we'll use this case just to progress through, through um, the decision-making here. We'll start with the diagnosis, uh, moving into non-operative management uh, considerations uh, and return to play, uh, some of the stuff about bracing and uh, external rotation bracing, uh, and then move on to some of the indications for surgery versus conservative care. We'll talk about uh, the arthroscopic bank heart repair uh, and some of the technical considerations around that. Uh, we'll move into things like the Latterjay procedure, um, talk about uh, indications for the Latterjay in a first-time dislocator versus uh, someone with multiple previous dislocation events versus the revision situation, and then potentially get on to some of the revision surgical uh, technical considerations, uh, and then finally on to rehabilitation and return to play. How does that all sound? Absolutely. You lead the way. Okay, so... This is a 19-year-old. Uh, let's say this happened on Friday night. It's now Monday morning. Um, he's in a simple shoulder sling and presents to your clinic, and you're take, seeing him for the first time. Take us through your um, your first visit with him and, and just some of your initial thoughts here. Yeah, so for the first time, you know, it's always important to get the right diagnosis so that, uh, you know, you've already mentioned a lot of it. Uh, he had a shoulder dislocation, which then required assistance in relocating it. And it was done in the emergency department. So I would ask if there are x-rays taken at the time, because that often give, gives you the direction of the dislocation and where things were. 
Uh, I also uh, asked them about the position of their arm when it happened and uh, because there, there can be different uh, subtle differences in arm positioning and where it dislocates and where the uh, pathology could be. So that that's all part of the, the history to make sure that it was, it was a, a true anterior dislocation uh, that came out, how it was put back in and any uh, imaging that's been taken to that point in time. So at that stage, you know, I start to consider, uh, you know, it's because it's an acute scenario, I'm sure he's going to be very sore, but I start to think about all the different factors uh, uh, of the patient that's involved here. So that uh, what you've described to me is a young male, uh, you said he, so I assume it's a male, uh, playing football, so that's a contact sport, and he's less than 20 years of age. So just based on those characteristics alone, I know that uh, he carries a significant uh, risk of re-injury uh, based on some of the classification criteria that we use. So anybody that's less than 20 uh, young males and plays a contact sport have a very high incidence of re-dislocation or, or episodes of uh, instability going forward. So those are the things that are going through my mind at that time in the office, just in terms of talking to the patient. And then Great. I want to examine them, right? Sure. So, so sometimes two or three days later, it's really difficult to tell uh, because they're very sore and you may not get as good a physical examination as you want at that point in time. In the acute situation, you want to rule out any nerve injuries. Sometimes with anterior dislocation, what can happen is, is that uh, one of the nerves uh, that goes underneath the shoulder part of the brachial plexus, the axillary nerve, can be stretched and uh, if they have any numbness on the outside part of their shoulder, any weakness of their deltoid muscle, that would give me some concern in terms of neurologic injury uh, that might've occurred at that point in time. But uh, we, we do a cursory examination, you know, later on when they come back and probably do a better evaluation to try and assess when and how they're, and we can talk about the subacute or more chronic patient as we go forward, but that would be sort of my initial assessment. Would you order any additional imaging on the patient at this point? So I think uh, for the discussions that are going to come uh, forward in the next uh, few minutes uh, or half hour here as we go forward, I think it's very important that you do evaluate the additional pathology that happens in the shoulder, because what we're going to want to know is the amount of labral injury. We want to know how much bony injury has occurred and where the bony injury has occurred so that we can make a good decision about timing of surgery, whether he needs surgery or not at this point in time and discussing some of the risk factors involved with that. Yeah, so I mean, this is a great start and we sort of have to make a little bit of a fork in the road here in terms of deciding what we do uh, with this patient and some of the things that we want to discuss. One of the things that often comes up is the first time dislocation versus a patient that say presents with mo multiple dislocation events. Let's say this was like his 10th episode of shoulder instability. The other thing that I want to ask you about is, is the timing of this dislocation. And what I'm referring to there is mid-season dislocation versus say this happening as the final uh, game of the year and how that might change your your plan and management for this this patient and where i'm getting at there is allowing this patient to go back to play yeah so that's a great question and a subject uh, for debate and i guess that's where your question comes from uh you know we we uh, throw this back and forth there are some uh, pretty good papers out there now showing that uh, if somebody so we're, we're talking about two different scenarios here. Uh, so whether yeah. we should do a surgery after a first-time dislocation, end of question, 
versus surgery on a patient who is in the middle of their season and whether you should do it now or at the end of the season or not at all, okay? So that uh, what we're addressing now is whether we should allow the patients to return to play in the middle of a season. Let's say it's a big, it's their final high school year or college year. Well, he's 19, so he's in high school. And, uh, you know, they, they have a chance at the state championships. What are you going to do in that scenario? So that uh, I think that there's a number of papers that show that uh, uh, these guys can get back to sport. And uh, depending on when they have uh, and what kind of uh, instability episode they have. So obviously, if they have something called a subluxation, which you described, I think, a little bit in your shoulder, uh, uh, as opposed to coming out completely, if it, if it just partially came out, they have a better chance of uh, short recovery in about four or five days and getting back to play versus somebody who dislocates was probably going to require about seven to 10 days to get over the acute injury. So that's the first thing that you need to consider. How long is it going to take for them to get back? Some of the guys with dislocations might take a little longer than that. So I usually tell them it's going to be at least two or three weeks, or at least they can control their arms uh, for the sport that they do so that they can protect themselves so that they don't re-injure themselves again going back to play. So that there's a lot of factors that come to whether you're going to let them return to play. So then the question comes, well, uh, does it make any difference if you wait till the end of the season versus doing surgery for them uh, right at the time that they injure it? And there's been a number of papers that have looked at this. Uh, probably the, the most experienced, a guy by the name of John Dickens, uh, uh, who uh, did a lot of this work in the military, looking at patients who had instability episodes and then uh, whether they could return to their sport. And they showed that, you know, 75% of, of patients who have a dislocation or, inst or a subluxation episode during the season could get back to play and 25% of them can. So that's sort of the ballpark numbers. Okay. So um, if you're looking at the ones that, that do return to sport, the question is, should you operate on them earlier? And they've looked at that as well so that uh, they had a series of patients where what they did in one season, uh, they looked at uh, uh, 39 uh, collegiate athletes who had another season of eligibility and uh, 10 chose rehab with no surgery, 20 chose surgery, and then a ni nine chose immediate surgery after the one event. And what they found was that the ones electing non-operative treatment, so not to have any surgery, um, only 40% uh, of them had a successful return to play in the next season without having another recurrence at that point in time. So that's pretty good evidence that you know, even if you dislocate your shoulder and then it doesn't bother you at the end of the season, you still probably should do something at the end of the season. So I think that that answers that question. Right. The, the second question then is, is that does, does having it done immediately versus um, waiting till the end of the season, does that make any difference? And in, the, in the, the, that patient population that they evaluated, there was really no difference between the two groups in terms of return to play, uh, recurrence rates and all that kind of stuff. So that it looks like you can probably wait till the end of the season, if they have an in-season instability episode and not affect their long-term clinical outcome. So that that's okay. that. So for the listener to just give this a little bit of context, we know that they're a young patient, they're 19 years old, and they've had an initial anterior instability event. And as we've talked about here, the chance of them re-dislocating their shoulder is very high. Um, I think this is something that often is 
uh, underappreciated by some clinicians, but as a patient who's younger than the age of about 20 who has an initial dislocation event, their chance of this happening again is very high, and it's in the vicinity of roughly 90% or even higher. So what we're talking about here is allowing them to return to play, knowing that there's a very high possibility that they are going to re-dislocate their shoulder, and therefore what is the harm in that happening again? One of the comparisons that this has recently gotten in the literature is starting to um, treat these injuries similar to how we would treat someone with an ACL injury. When you tear your ACL, you're basically done for the season. The reason for that is that you've got an unstable knee and the risks of allowing a patient, particularly in a, in a sport that involves pivoting and cutting, allowing a patient to go back to play with a torn ACL puts the other structures in their knee at risk, mainly the medial and lateral menisci and the other ligaments, the, the PCL and the collateral ligaments. And if they go back with an unstable knee, there's a potential there for another knee injury, which, which might result in an even worse outcome and, and problem to deal with. So we're starting to sort of compare shoulder dislocations to that a little bit in that allowing these patients to go back after their first dislocation, we know that they've got an extremely high chance that this is going to happen again. So why not keep them out, rehab them and get them into surgery rather than allowing them to go back and play. But with this said, this also has to be balanced with the athlete and, you know, the agent and all the other factors here. Maybe this is someone who wants to get back and play. Maybe they're in the you know, later stages of the season, they've, they've got a chance at the state championship or something like that. Um, a number of topics here that, that, that are debated and, and all important things to consider with when dealing with this, this patient that presents after their first dislocation. Right. And so that's, and that's uh, why what the real thing that you need to define here is how much, that's why if you go back to when you asked if I would do any more studies, the, I think the imaging helps me a lot with this discussion with the patients in okay. terms of trying to make that decision. So, you know, what we need to determine and what I don't think that we have yet the data to, to accomplish. I think we can all agree that somebody who dislocates the shoulder the first time, uh, if they have an operation, they have a lower recurrence rate and they get back. Um, uh, but their pathology, you know, when does it get to the chronic instability phases where they have a lot of bone loss so that you know, is that at two? Is that at three dislocations? Is that at five? Is it at 10? So that that's the number that we don't know. Right. So the reason what I go through is that if we're going to make a decision about return to play, so I, I always talk to the, to the athlete, obviously, and then, uh, you know, depending on their age with their parents as well, uh, so that the decision can be made. So that if they have a first time and they really express an interest in going back to play and not wanting to have surgery, we look at their imaging first so that I can show them the exact pathology. So is it all ligamentous versus any bony pathology at all? So if there's no bony pathology at all, it's all ligamentous. That's a good thing because they haven't done significant amount of bone damage. But if during that first dislocation, they have a significant amount of bone pathology, I can tell you that the risk of it coming out again are very, very high, and the chances of them not making it through the season are very high. Got it. In that, situ that situation, I would say, listen, you know, more episodes of instability are going to lead to more bone loss, which is the more significant problem because the ligaments, they're torn, we can fix them. The bone loss problem is a much more significant clinical problem as you recognize. So usually when I make a decision with a family it's, uh, and uh, the patient, 
is that if we decide that they're going to go back and return to play or return to their sports without having had a surgery after the first time dislocation, that any more episodes after that, then probably it's time to get their shoulder operated on. Because I, I, I think that two versus one, there's not enough of a difference in the amount of pathology that you see that it probably is still the same operation. But once you start getting past three, I think that's when you start seeing more of the bone defect. Okay, great. Got it. So on that note, uh, we talk about using imaging to help direct our decision making here. MRI versus CT versus getting both of these studies. What's your decision here? So I, I, I think that there's proponents of, of both. And I think that's why you're asking the question. I believe that uh, with uh, uh, a very high definition uh, MRI, 3T MRI, and the appropriate sequences that you can see all the pathology you need to see and measure it. Some people talk about evaluating bone loss, and it's much better done on a 3D CT scan so that you can measure, look at volumes and all that kind of stuff. I usually reserve that for uh, these patients who come in with, say, 10 multiple dislocations where I'm looking to do some form of reconstruction on the glenoid or on the humerus or both and trying to figure out uh, how much bone volume is gone. But usually I can get a good enough impression on a, say, a 3T MRI so that I can know the ligamentous pathology as well as some of the bone pathology involved. So do you stick to 3T MRI non-contrast, or do you think there's any role for an arthrogram in this case? So I, uh, with the 3T MRI, I think that our uh, uh, specificity and sensitivity have gone up on both and I think that uh, you don't really need to use uh, arthrogram dye. If you're, the 1.5 Teslas, uh, probably if, if there's a little bit of concern, you might want to use dye in that situation. But I, I use uh, now frequently a 3T MRI, which gives me enough information. Okay, so let's just move ahead then with this example. Let's say you've had this discussion with the patient alongside his family. You've talked about the risks of re-dislocation and so on. And your plan now is to try and get him back to his season. So uh, the return to play criteria in in this example. Let's just talk a little bit about the non-operative management uh, plan here for this patient. So for this patient, he's presenting here in a simple sling. Um, and what I'm getting to here is the question about uh, whether or not external rotation bracing, if there's any benefit or whether or not you would recommend this for this guy. Yeah, there was a lot of excitement uh, a number of years ago when that first was described. But uh, I think that subsequently that's not borne out to be uh, true that patients immobilizing external rotation don't really have any uh, specific benefits. So I let the patients rest in a sling for as long as uh, they're uncomfortable and then get them moving right away. So that I, I'm a proponent of, of movement and getting their strength and range of motion back. What's your timeline in terms of allowing this patient to return to football or get back to another contact sport? Yeah, so, you know, everybody wants a, a, a date timeline. And like I said, if you look at the literature, everybody talks about 10 to 14 days for these uh, type of scenarios. And that's when you're trying to sort of get people back as soon as possible. Uh, I usually try and set criteria that people can actually identify so that uh, they have to have full range of motion. They have to have full strength so that I can't break down their rotator cuff so that I can be convinced that they can go back to play the sport that they need to do and protect themselves uh, in case of another injury or uh, uh, some assault that, uh, you know, might cause them to need to use their arms. So if they have any hesitation or weakness in doing some of those activities, especially of their rotator cuff strength, 
then I, I still will put it off. So this is sort of assuming that this has been a straightforward anterior shoulder dislocation with a labral tear without any other concomitant pathology such as a bony bank art. And for the listener, when we say bony bank art, what we're referring to there is rather than just the soft tissue injury of the uh, glenoid labrum being torn off the glenoid, he now has a fracture to the glenoid rim, which we, which we uh, say is called a bony bank art lesion. So he's been placed into a simple sling. He's going to start rehab once the initial dust settles. Uh, he's going to progress through range of motion and then on to strengthening exercises and, and, and so on from there. And after that, you're going to have a, an appropriate conversation and allow him to return to play. What might sway your decision in the other direction? And what I mean by that, what are some of the, the findings on the imaging that might sort of prompt you to say that, no, you can't go back to play. You need to have surgery. So, like I said, I, I'm uh, trying to see how much additional bone pathology has occurred. And we know uh, from the literature that it's actually fairly frequent on the humeral side, uh, you know, probably as yep. high as yeah. 75 to 80% of the times they get uh, even a small defect on the humeral head. And uh, it can occur, you know, 40 to 50% of the time on the glenoid side, first time. So that I'm looking for the amount of bony pathology and trying to quantify it. You know, uh, years ago, we would look at isolated defects on the glenoid side of 20% as being sort of a critical number and, you know, greater than 25 to 30% on the humeral head as being a critical number. But now we understand that actually smaller defects on both in combination will give you potential instability problems. And so that uh, it's something that I want to be aware of and discuss with the patient. Certainly, if they have a very large hill sacs lesion, uh, or a very large glenoid lesion, then I, I often talk to the patient saying, you know, I think this is gonna come out and even higher than 90%. And uh, you could do significantly more injury. So then we have a discussion about whether it's one game or two games that they wanna finish the season before we do the surgery, because then it's probably gonna be a bigger operation anyway. So those are the things that I wanna look at and then discuss with them so that they understand. And if you have small lesions, then talking to them about making them bigger lesions and the potential that then they change the operation that you might be able to do today to what you might do if they wait till the end of the season and they have a few more episodes uh, during the season. Got it. So this now leads us to our next fork in the road, which is dealing with a simple first-time dislocation and a, and a simple bank heart repair versus someone who's maybe had multiple uh, instability events with some bony involvement, whether it be a large hill sacs lesion on the humeral head or a large bony bank heart on the glenoid side or potentially both of these lesions. But let's just start with a simple dislocation. Let's focus on this patient. Let's say he goes back to play. Uh, he finishes his season, gets through the playoffs. Uh, he doesn't have any further instability events, and now he presents to you at the end of his season saying, you know, thanks for rehabbing me and getting me back back to the season. Um, I was able to finish my year. I didn't have any any other events, uh, but my shoulder just doesn't feel right. It still feels unstable in certain positions. I have pain, um, and let's let's just uh, say that he's got a, a you know your typical bank heart lesion, a soft tissue injury from around three o'clock to six o'clock. Um, your simple uh, anterior, anterior inferior labral repair. How are you dealing with this patient at this point? Okay. No, so that's, that's uh, you know, all important information. The other thing is that uh, I, I also do physical examination because 
there's a, a, a trick that I learned many, many years ago that patients who had bone instability as a component of their instability problem, meaning large hill sacs or large glenoid defects, their level of apprehension uh, is at much lower levels than what you would normally see. So normally what we, we call the apprehension position is at 90 degrees of abduction and then you externally rotate the shoulder and it feels like it's going to pop out. So people who have uh, bone pathology on either the humerus or the glenoid, because as you start to engage it, usually they occur at lower levels of abduction. So I usually test them at 30 or 45 degrees of abduction. And if I externally rotate them and they feel like they're going to pop out, if that MRI has not been recent, I will repeat it again just to make sure that we're not dealing with significant bone pathology because that's one of the telltale signs, okay? So that, that would be the first thing. Okay. But if, uh, if we've got an MRI and we've got the patient story that you tell and it's all labral pathology and we talk about surgical management, is that what uh, your question is at that stage? Yeah, so going on that, I'll, I'll ask you a question just because I'm thinking about it right now. And that's the difference between an MRI and a CT scan. And this reminds me of uh, Dr. Whalen, Danny Whalen at St. Mike's during my residency. He used to say to, say to us, if a patient's presenting uh, after their first dislocation, don't get an MRI because you, you already know that they've got a labral tear. Rather, get a CT scan to, to look more specifically for any bony involvement. Uh, that'll give you more information about the size of their hill sacs lesion on the humeral side, and then also evaluate for, for a bony band cart uh, on the glenoid. Um, and I guess the reasoning there is, is as I've said, you, you, you sort of know they have a soft tissue injury, but you need more information about the, the bony involvement. And this was maybe before 3T MRIs were available during my residency, but, but give us your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I, I feel fairly confident, uh, with the scans that I get that uh, we can evaluate bony pathology as well as the soft tissue pathology. Okay, so let's just uh, move ahead with that then. Um, you're seeing this patient here. He has a labral tear, a labral tear. Let's just talk about the the simple arthroscopic stabilization, capsular shift, labral repair, whatever you want to call it. This Bankart procedure. Um, and for the orthopedic surgeons listening, I want to talk about some of the technical considerations, uh, some of the things that you think are Im important and some of the pearls that you recognized for this procedure, number of anchors that you use, the location of your most inferior anchor, spacing between your anchors, do you tie knots anymore, and then maybe positioning of the patient, beach chair versus lateral decubitus. And then the final thing I want to talk about with this is is adding the remplissage, uh, what your decision is to do this during a typical Bankart repair uh, when you add this on and any technical pearls that you would recommend for that procedure. Yeah, so for the, so I do, I, I'm a beach chair position person. Uh, some people like to do a louder decubitus for instability. They feel that they can uh, they can get around the, the clock face of you will of the glenoid the better in the uh, louder decubitus position. But I find that I can get to, to uh, all the spots on the glenoid uh, uh, just as easily uh, from the beach chair position. So I, I use that as my uh, go-to operation for a shoulder arthroscopy. So, uh, you know, and I start, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that you need to do is do a full evaluation of the pathology in the shoulder, make sure they haven't done any damage to the rotator cuff. Highly unlikely in a 19-year-old, but I have seen some uh, young patients with uh, a partial or even full thickness uh, lesions of the rotator cuff that can occur so that you need to evaluate the rotator cuff and the biceps anchor. And, uh, you know, what we've learned, arthroscopy has been a, a, a great eye-opener for us because uh, some of the things that we never used to see with pathology when you do open surgery through the front 
is that you realize that when you dislocate your shoulder, it's a very dynamic process and the posterior labrum is often affected as well. So that sometimes there's injuries in the posterior labrum that need to be attended to as well so that you don't want to ignore those uh, during the procedure. And so somebody like you, you know, not that we're disclosing your HIPAA information here because you, <laughs> you gave it all away, but you know, you, you had a tear uh, and it was 360 degrees, you know, the whole anchor and the labrum anterior posterior was off. And so we, we started with anchors all the way around the front and back to uh, reconstruct your anatomy so that you've got to do what's right for the patient and fixing that. And then I evaluate also at that time, looking at the, uh, the glenoid and the humerus to look at the bone loss and if there's uh, um, a significant amount of bone loss or not. I usually have that number in my head because of the MRI ahead of time. So I don't like to, to go to the OR to try and figure out what to do. I usually know what I'm going to do uh, ahead of time, but I, I still look at it and document it and take pictures so, so that the patient has it. And I have it in my, in the record. For the and just on that note, for someone with a more considerable labral tear that maybe involves the anterior labrum and the posterior labrum, how do you progress through that case? Where do you start? Uh, do you fix the front first or the back first? And just tell us how you progress there. So I usually start uh, at anterior inferior. And so, uh, you know, one of the things in the B share position, the glenoid actually is a little bit oblique to you. So that, uh, you know, usually you can get a five o'clock anchor in on the glenoid, but not much lower than that. Uh, so to get it to a six o'clock anchor, you really have to go uh, behind the humeral head and try and get it in that position. Uh, and, and then you can work your way up the back. So I usually go uh, start at the front and go from anterior inferior and work up towards uh, uh, the uh, biceps anchor and fix the whole uh, inferior glenohumeral ligament, middle glenohumeral ligament, depending on, on what's off and what's uh, detached. So then you'll maybe flip the scope around to look from the front and maybe fix the back then. Yeah, so I'll have already, so I start with, I look around the hole so that I know exactly yeah. what my pathology is. And then if I know there's posterior pathology, I'll flip my scope to the front and then do the rest of the work from the back. Okay, great. And in terms of knots, have you stopped tying knots completely? Have you gone completely knotless or do you tie knots in certain positions? Yeah, so I, I've i gone knotless. I think that, uh, uh, you know, having those knots exposed in the joint you know, I, I have had patients over the years, uh, especially with fiber wire, complain of squeaking and stuff in their shoulder. And I was never sure exactly what that came from. But yeah. now with all the knotless anchors, uh, and there's different ones, there's ones with uh, uh, the peak anchors, there's ones with all suture anchors, so that uh, you can cut those very close uh, to the labor. So all you see is the suture around the soft tissue and not any uh, abrading uh, suture hanging out. Uh, and what is your your preference for anchors? Have you gone to um, a knotless anchor, an all-suture anchor? What, what's your what's your preference here? So I, I have uh, been using all-suture anchors a little more frequently uh, recently, uh, but uh, usually a peak, a small uh, anchor, uh, which is knotless. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the remplissage procedure and your decision to do this. Uh, let's say during a typical Bankart repair, what's your primary indication to add on a remplissage? Sure. Well, you know, this is very interesting having watched the evolution of our treatment of Hill-Sachs lesions, you know, so, uh, you know, if I can digress a little bit. Uh, so when I was just starting out in practice uh, uh, many, many years ago uh, and being in Canada and in London and Toronto, I was seeing a lot of hockey players, obviously, so that uh, there are no higher contact, higher speed sports than uh, hockey. And I was seeing a lot of these guys with Hill-Sachs lesions 
and then they would fail their soft tissue operations. But their glenoid defects didn't appear to be so large, but these huge hill sacs lesions, and I was convinced that that was a significant portion of their problem. So I started talking about that around the same time that a guy by the name of Steve Burkhart and Joe DeBeer from South Africa started looking at arthroscopic repairs and failures of those, started talking about glenoid defects as being the cause for recurrent instability. So that was way back in the late 1980s that we, we sort of talked about that, described that. And then since that time, people have done a lot of biomechanical research and, and uh, clinical research showing that actually the hill sacs may be the predictive factor in terms of recurrent instability problems so that uh, the presence of that shouldn't be ignored anymore because for years we just ignored it. And, and uh, so I pay a lot of attention to it just because uh, way back then I described a number of patients that we treated with bone grafting for the hill sacs lesion when the, their humeral head defect was like over 30% of the head. Uh, but now we've sort of uh, gotten to a lot more procedures. And obviously now we've moved to a soft tissue operation to try and fix some of these smaller hill sacs because we know that the hill sacs might be predictive of further recurrent instability problems down the road. And there's a nice paper actually from our Canadian colleagues. Uh, there's a, a, a nice group, a Canadian shoulder study group. And so across the country, they did a study where they randomized patients with hill sacs lesions, and they looked at recurrence rates in patients who had just a straightforward bank heart repair versus those that had a rhombosage. And the patients that had the rhombosage had a lower recurrence rate. So yeah. the only difficulty with that study is that they didn't uh, really quantify the size of the defects and what was important. And I think that probably if the, our biomechanical research shows that if the lesion is smaller than say 20 to 15 to 20% of the humeral head, then it probably doesn't impact your result. Whereas once you start getting over 20%, it probably does and you need to start thinking about doing it some, something for it at that time. So if I think a lesion is about 20% of the humeral head, then I'm going to probably do a rhombosage in addition to the soft tissue repair. And then if I think the lesion gets over 25 to 30%, I'm probably going to do some form of open bone reconstruction for that patient as well. Sorry, what did you say your indication was to do an open bony procedure? About 25 to 30%. Because I don't think that a ronquissage works very well in patients who are missing, you know, a quarter to a third of their humeral head. On that note, I want to uh, have you talk to us a little bit about this concept of on-track versus off-track lesions. Now, for the listener who's maybe not fully uh, aware of some of these terms, when you dislocate your shoulder anteriorly out the front, you typically tear a characteristic portion of the labrum, which is the anterior inferior labrum. Sometimes, sometimes that results in a bony lesion, which we call the bony Bankart lesion, where uh, a piece of bone is knocked off the glenoid rim. Additionally, when the humeral head articulates with the front of the glenoid, you can get a, a dent in the in the... Uh, back of the humeral head, and we term this the hill sacs lesion. This dent can be described as either engaging or non-engaging, and this leads us to this concept of on-track versus off-track lesions. Do you want to just describe that for us in a little more detail? Sure. The way I always remember it is if your train's on the track, that's a good thing. If it's off the track, that's a bad thing. <laughs> I, do, I do the same, yeah. So... Uh, so the off-track lesions, which is the ones we're talking about, so that where the dent in the humeral head on the ball and the dent on the socket side, they come into contact with each other. And so that, uh, you know, Yamamoto uh, back in 2007 came up with this concept 
to talk about, you know, how much of the width of the glenoid was missing and then comparing that to how much of the width of the humeral head was missing and then looking to see if that would engage itself when you took that arm into that apprehension position. So that, uh, um, uh, you know, there's a mathematical formula. We don't need to go into that in terms of how you figure that out. Yeah. So if you if you get the measurements and you have an off-track lesion, then that tells you that you probably need to do something to either the glenoid bone defect or to the humeral defect or to both, okay? And it, and it really, in my mind, it depends on how large those lesions are and what you should be doing. Got it. So that's a great explanation. So you've got the appropriate imaging and that helps determine what your plan is when you do get in there. And you've explained to us that anything less than about 25% of the humeral head involvement, you might consider doing a remplissage. And anything more than that on the humeral side, you might be considering doing a bone grafting procedure. And just for the orthopedic surgeon who's listening here, some technical hurdles for the remplissage. What's your approach to that? Are you using all suture anchors? Are they double or triple loaded? Uh, what's your approach to the remplissage procedure? Yeah, so so for the procedure I use, I like it's a fairly simple technique. I just find the area on the humeral head, and uh, I put uh, a cannula in the back there, and I just uh, you can go right down to the so the capsule is on the inside of the infraspinatus tendon, and you can actually sort of see your uh, anchor, uh, your your cannula moving around in that area, the tip of the cannula. And then what I do is I, I get a spinal needle and I put it through to see where that spot is so that I can get to that spot. And then what I use is uh, two all suture anchors, which uh, you can interconnect. And so that uh, what happens is you put them in and then you just snap them outside and leave them in the cannula. You go do your work in the front, whatever you need to do in terms of your bank heart repair. And then I tie my remplissage at the end of the procedure. And for a much bigger lesion that let's say involves about 35% of the humeral head um, and you're now considering bone grafting, what's your approach to this? This is obviously a much bigger case because it involves an open approach to get to the, the lesion at the posterior aspect of the head. But what's your approach here? So usually, and everybody says, well, if it's at the back, uh, how do I expose it from the back? And I usually do these from the front okay. because they're going to have, in addition to the humeral head defect, usually labral okay. pathology that I need to fix. Ladder J or whatever it is you're doing in the front. And they also sometimes have bony pathology that I need to fix as well. So that I'll do an open anterior approach. And on the humeral head, you know, many years ago, I described an operation where we used bone graft, allograft, so that uh, we would match the size and side of the patient to a donor tissue. And I would get fresh graft. And this was when we were back in Toronto, actually. And I would take that and then cut it to the exact size and shape that the patient was missing and then reconstruct their anatomy to do that. And then uh, that operation started becoming more and more frequent. And so we ran out of graphs and it was very difficult to get things so that you'd order graphs and they'd say, well, it's gonna be about three to six months before you get it. And so, so, uh, over the years, I actually developed a small implant, a small metal partial resurfacing implant that I have been using now on a number of occasions, and we've published on this as well for this indication, where we fill the back of that defect with this uh, piece of metal called a hemicap, and then uh, so that uh, it's fixed to the head with a, a screw taper post, and then you you place the head on top of it so that you can match the contour and anatomy perfectly to the patient's own anatomy. And we've had 
actually excellent results with that in all age groups going back to sports uh, without any limitations uh, in the majority of patients. So that's what I would do on the humoral side. And then while I'm there, you know, depending on the on what's gone on in the front, if it's just a soft tissue repair, but oftentimes they need some sort of bony pathology and whether you use a graft or a ladder J, uh, it depends on your choice and uh, the different indications and I'll I'll let you... Uh... Yeah, so that's sort of taking us into the next topic here, and that's glenoid bone loss. So let's say this is a little bit of a different patient who's had multiple dislocations of his shoulder and now presents with a bony bankart lesion. So for the listener, he's dislocated his shoulder anteriorly and he's torn the soft tissue structures, which is the labrum. But because of maybe multiple dislocation events, he's also knocked off a piece of bone from the anterior glenoid rim. And this is what we term the bony bankart. So let's just go from there. I know you talked about some of your examination findings, but let's just talk to you uh, about your approach here with this type of patient. Usually their defect uh, is in the, you know, we used to talk about 20%. That number's been getting smaller all the time. You know, now everybody talks about being over 13.5% as being the number which is significant. So let's say somewhere in the vicinity of 15% of loss of bone on the front. And the whole concept, really, when we talked about you know, the, the, the on track and off track, we talked about, you know, the glenoid being the base or the track. And so what we're trying to do is actually make the track wider so that that's what we're trying to accomplish with all of these different operations. So that the most commonly done one is something called a Latterge that was described uh, uh, in France and uh, Europeans use this operation a lot. It's a great operation. Uh, it involves transfer of the bone, the coracoid bone, which is just near your shoulder, and it's attached muscles into the shoulder itself. Uh, and you screw that to the bone so that it heals and it increases the width of the glenoid so that now you have a bigger surface for the, the ball to articulate on. So that, that's been a pretty good operation uh, in terms of preventing instability. The recurrence rates are fairly low, less than 5%. Um, some people feel that the transfer of the muscles also adds a dynamic component as a sling to prevent shoulder instability. Uh, but it's, it's not without its complications and risks. It's, it's, uh, it's a little bit harder operation. A uh, number of surgeons are a little more nervous when they do that operation because all the nerves, the brachial plexus, the, the arteries and veins that go to your arm uh, go right by that so that they can be injured. The, uh, the axillary nerve can be injured. The musculocutaneous nerve, which is to your biceps, can be injured. So that, uh, and a lot of those complications, uh, in addition to things like hardware uh, complications, fracture of the screws, not healing of the bone, resorption of the bone, those are all uh, significant. And so that uh, people have looked for other bone grafting options to try and uh, minimize those uh, risks and complications. So I want to just prompt you a little bit on the ladder J and I'll tell you exactly what I'm thinking. And that is, what is your indication for the ladder J in a primary dislocation? So a first time dislocation event, what's your indication to go rather than for, from a primary labral repair or a bank heart repair, what's your indication to do a, a ladder J in this patient? Yeah. So that's a, you know, that's a great question. And, you know, so if you were in France, the patient you described would probably, you know, contact young male 19 uh, with. Yeah. The rugby player. Yeah. Right. He would, he would automatically get a, a ladder J type of procedure because the recurrence rate would be low. He'd be able to go back. You know, the patients have to be involved with, uh, with all these decisions. They have to understand a lot of things that we're talking about here today. So 
if I see a defect on the glenoid side, which is larger than 15%, then I immediately start talking to the patient about that significant pathology. And if, especially if it's combined with any sort of defect on the humeral head, I'll tell them, I go, if we do a soft tissue operation here, that your success rate of the surgical procedure goes from over 90% and drops down to about 80%. So that, uh, but I can tell you that even with that discussion, most people want to have the less morbid operation and they're, they're willing to sort of hedge their bets to sort of say, okay, you know what, if you do it and maybe I do a, a bank heart repair with plus or minus a rompassage, that even if I have an 80%, that's still an 80%. And I'd rather try that operation rather than doing the, the riskier, more complex open procedure down the road. So that's how I usually frame that discussion with them and allow them to make that decision. And so you sort of reference about 20, 25% bony involvement, but in, if you see something a little bit less than that, if there's a 10% uh, glenoid defect, are you still going to manage this all arthroscopically? Any pearls in, in dealing with that type of a patient? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, that one's straightforward labral type of repair, and I use I incorporate the labrum into the reconstruction. I think that those... You know, people shouldn't get tricked in terms of trying to fix those fragments. Uh, although, you know, some people have described putting sutures around the fragments and reattaching them. And that's fine. You know, it gives you some some substance where the sutures can pull against. But I don't think that uh, you should legitimately, you know, there, there's been some reports showing that you might get them to heal and all that kind of stuff. But I think the, the major part of that operation is getting a good stout labor repair with a nice bumper uh, along all the right. front right. edge of the glenoid. Okay. And just because we're here, any role anymore for an open bank art procedure? Yeah, I, I think we've lost the art of actually doing the, uh, you know, you ask right. the trainees now, very rarely do they see an open yeah. bank art. I still think that, you know, it's a good operation. And I, I, I think there's a lot of people who maybe in that player that you're talking about who didn't have big bone defects, but is the contact athlete, that some individuals would probably do an, an open bank art repair in them, which I wouldn't criticize for. So I'll just ask you this then. So for a patient with who does have a substantial uh, bony bank art, say 20%, with also a good size hill sacs in the humeral head, say about 20% as well, what's your approach to managing this patient? So I think that uh, some individuals would just do a bone grafting procedure on the front of the glenoid, like a latter or some form of allograft to fix the defect. So I, just a qualifier here. The latter J will work if the defect on the glenoid side gets 30% or greater, then the latter J sometimes is not big enough to fill that defect. And sometimes you want to use a different form of bone graft, whether it's from the patient's own iliac crest or whether you use a piece of allograft. So that's the first thing. So if they have a combination on the humeral head, the reason that I think that you need to fix the humeral head is that when we looked at this in the lab, that what happens is, is that, uh, the, if you have a defect larger than 20%, the stresses start to increase significantly if you do the graft on the front. So it starts to toggle the graft and move the screws in the graft. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that we get uh, resorption or non-unions of the bone grafts or fracture of the screws in situations where they have a large hill sacs lesion. Okay, that's interesting. So I, so I think that that's why in that situation that you just described, I think you need to fix both to preserve both the anterior bony repair that you're doing as well as give them full contour of their humeral head. If it's so, smaller than 20%, I don't think you need to worry about it. How are you going to do that operation? 
What's your process? So I do an open shoulder approach and it's like doing a total shoulder replacement so that you actually dislocate the humeral head straight out of the socket so that I can see the full humeral head. And then while I'm looking at the back of the humeral head, I measure the defect and then I'll fill that defect with either bone graft or like I said, my little metal cap. And then once that's done, I'll reduce the head and then finish the operation where I'll put bone on the front and then do a labor repair on top of it. Right. So, so that's basically you're, you, you're, you're saying you have to bone graft the humeral head. There's, cause obviously there's no way of doing a ramp massage open. Well, from no. the front, you have to go to the back. So you're never going to scope that patient to a ramp massage or maybe do the ladder J first and then scope them. Yeah. So I, I personally don't think that ramp massages work for defects larger than 25%. Okay. So that I wouldn't accept because some people say, yeah, well, yeah, you can right. scope it, do a ramp massage and then open it and do the ladder J. I, I, I wouldn't accept the ramp massage if that defect was the, for the ones that I'm actually going to fill with something anyways. So I would do it all open. And in terms of your choice between doing the ladder J and an allograft. So I suppose just for the listener, you know, there's two options with, with bone grafting. One, you can use the patient's coronoid process from the front, um, or you can use allograft bone where you get from, from a cadaver. Now there's differences, technical differences in those two procedures in that with the ladder J, you're going to have something called the sling effect in that you place the coracoid process through the subscapularis, which, which prevents certain ranges of motion and, and has a role in, in preventing further dislocations. But with an allograft, you're not going to have that same sling effect because there's no attachments to the allograft bone. Is that is that an okay way of saying it? Yeah, so that's what uh, we, we used to think. and uh, But I think that there's enough biomechanical data now to show that even though at time zero, you have that sling effect, that probably that doesn't result in any differences in clinical recurrence rates. So that uh, uh, people who are proponents of some form of graft, whether it be allograft or whether it be autograft, like from an iliac crest, uh, so that you could use patients' own iliac crest, uh, yeah. that, that uh, there's been pretty good reports with each of those operations showing that the recurrence rates are fairly low. But the nice thing about it is that they avoid some of the complications of the latter J, especially the neurologic complications. So you, you sort of skirt around those by using some form of bone graft as opposed to the coracoid. What's your personal preference here in it? And let's say this patient, 19 year old, you know, multiple dislocations, latter J versus say distal tibia uh, allograft. Yeah. First time operation in a young patient. Is it, yeah. I, this is not like a three-time revision or something like that. No, right? no. You've got both options available to you. Yeah. So I think in, in somebody like that, uh, high level young patient, I would, uh, I would give them the options about uh, the ladder J versus the uh, allograft procedure. Although in that patient, if it's never been done before, probably uh, choose the, uh, because it's their own bone, you probably get better healing rates. Uh, and I'm pretty confident that uh, by fixing the humeral head defect as well, that, that we're not going to have issues with healing and breakage of the screws and all that kind of stuff. Got it. Uh, but if and it's, a, if it's a, an, a little bit older patient, a revision type procedure, let's say that they failed a couple of other operations, I might just go to the allograft at that stage. Got it. And in the revision setting, since we're sort of getting getting there now, let's say a someone who's had an arthroscopic stabilization in the past who presents with further instability events, 
but still no bony involvement? What's your uh, approach with that patient? Yeah, so, you know, trying to figure out what went wrong with that patient. Some of them are just not, you know, nothing is 100%. So something, uh, nothing may have gone wrong. It just may have had another uh, episode where they just dislocated their shoulder. But if there's, uh, if there's any questions or concerns uh, about, uh, you know, whether the anchors, but I, I pay a lot of attention to those patients. Again, my physical examination, making sure that I don't think bone is an issue, doing my evaluation of bone on the imaging. Uh, and if I'm convinced that there's no bone issue, then I would do a, uh, a revision of their stabilization. This might be the case uh, that you might want to do an open uh, bank heart repair if you're not sure. Uh, so that I think that that would be a reasonable option. Or I think that there's uh, reasonable uh, results reported of revision stabilizations uh, by many surgeons showing that you can redo these operations again with, with decent results. Are you are you still doing many open rev revisions or open bank arts? So I so <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, I have a very skewed practice. So I'm I'm getting a lot more of the last patients that we talked about than the first patient. <laughs> right. So I, I see a, I see a lot of open surgery. Okay. And still sort of saving ladder J, it sounds like for more of a complicated one that's had multiple dislocations and so on, rather than in your, say this guy, just for a primary ladder. Yeah, I haven't made that step yet. Uh, you know, like I said, I do talk to the patients about it for sure, uh, about all the options. And uh, we talk about failure rates and we talk about how much bone they've lost. Uh, but I still, I still am a firm believer that uh, uh, the, the well-indicated patient with a good operation, arthroscopic stabilization can do very well. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty What have we missed? Anything there on the surgical side of things? I think we've, uh, we've covered. Uh, yeah. A to Z there. Good. So I just want to ask you a couple of what a couple points about what you do post-operatively with these patients. So let's just say it's your standard first time dislocate, first time dislocator following a primary bank heart repair, arthroscopic stabilization, capsular shift. Yeah. So I, I put them in a sling for a few days um, just to let them settle down from the surgical procedure. They're usually sore the first two or three days. I, we do uh, use a block, an interscaling block, get to help them with their post-operative pain, and then usually when that wears off. So that usually gets them three or four days. And, but in the meantime, I start them with pendular exercises, and I allow them to do forward elevation um, in the scapular plane as much as they tolerate. Uh, they sort of take it to the limit that they can tolerate and then push it a few degrees every day. Um, I don't push them too hard. Uh, and... Uh, Usually the real stretching and strengthening stuff doesn't happen for about six weeks. Yeah. And, and on that note, how long are you, are you typically recommending or seeing your patients in physical therapy, structured physical therapy? So I usually like to see them go for a period of up to six months. That's what the number we talked about at the beginning. I said, this could take up to six months because there's a range with everything. Some of them will come back at their three-month appointment and they're ready to go. I'd usually like to prove to them at that point that they're still a little bit weak so that I don't have to clear them to go back to sports. But, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so that uh, I tell them that there's a range. Sometimes they're ready at four months. Sometimes they're ready at five months. I usually like to tell them that the tissue still has to heal. So I'd like to keep them out for six months if possible. 
uh, just to get them as much healing as possible because, you know, it continues to mature the scar tissue that you created. Any restrictions or sort of bracing or protection, protective measures that you're utilizing when they do return to, to play? No, there are, as you know, there are a variety of braces. I'm sure you've seen it on NFL players. Uh, you know, they sublux or dislocate their shoulders and then they come out wearing these straps. I, I don't know that that will ever prevent an episode of dislocation or subluxation. Uh, it does tether them a little bit. A lot of athletes don't perform that well uh, just because, you know, it doesn't allow them to get their arm up in the overhead position. There's some sports where you can get away with it. Um, but uh, I, I usually don't depend on bracing to get them back to sport. Got it. Um, what else? Anything we've missed or should talk about? No, I think that uh, we've talked about the uh, soft tissues and the bony pathology and how it relates to shoulder instability and, you know, how you really have to figure it all out uh, so that you can get the best possible operation uh, for the patient. Yeah. For the listener, I, and I don't know if you've seen this, it was just recently published this month, February in Journal of Arthroscopy. I've actually got the three parts printed out here, but it was the anterior shoulder instability international consensus group group of doctors publishing three studies all published this month in the journal of arthroscopy pretty comprehensive look at at everything we've talked about start to finish as well on the anterior shoulder instability case and and going through all the questions there to try and i guess develop some sort of a consensus to help the the, the treating physician clinic. how did we do did we did we get good consensus with the paper oh great consensus yeah <laughs> of course how can give us a little bit, bit of a, a spiel on what you're doing? Where how can people get in touch with you and contact you? So uh, I'm at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and uh, I am at the Sports Health Center. So that uh, I do have an office there if they're looking to get a hold of me through the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I'm on their website as well. I'm doing a variety of different things now. Um, uh, you're talking about professionally or? Uh, Oh, in terms of clinical yeah, practice, maybe maybe, like maybe maybe patients who who need to come and see you. Yeah, so I do. You know, my biggest interest now are obviously shoulder instability has uh, been my bread and butter for many many years, as you know. And then uh, I also because once you get older, a lot of these patients eventually come back to you because they start having arthritis, but they're way too young to have regular shoulder replacements. So we've developed some uh, new shoulder implants uh, that are good for patients. Uh, uh, bone preserving, uh, allowing patients to get back to uh, all the activities they want to so they don't have to limit their activities. And so I do a lot of shoulder arthritis work now as well. Well, we've talked about that and doing another podcast, so don't say too much more on that because okay. uh, we don't want to spoil it for the listener. But uh, no, that sounds like a, maybe a good follow-up to, to this topic is dealing with the the young patient with atypical or advanced shoulder arthritis and what your approach is to dealing with that. Awesome. So if you agree to do this again, maybe that's, uh, that's our next uh, topic of uh, conversation here. Well, when you see how many likes or dislikes you get on this, you can let me know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. Have you been back to Toronto recently? Well, I was up there for the summer when uh, it looked like the COVID numbers were shrinking and then uh, spent some summer vacation up there. And then all of a sudden, you know, things started going through the roof again. So I haven't been up there since. So I think you probably want to avoid it right about now. Yeah. I, th I, th I think uh, lots of stuff going on North of the border. 
<laughs> Anyways, thanks for doing this. This has been uh, fantastic. Yeah, thank you. This was this was really a pleasure. Good to see you, good, Tony. Good to see you. You take care. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsor, Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Downs. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.